What's up, party people? Thanks for downloading our podcast. You can check out more of our episodes at thisamericanhorrorstory.com or on iTunes. Hello, everybody. Happy uh, day after Thanksgiving, and welcome to This American Horror Story, an unofficial podcast for the FX hit show American Horror Story. I am your host, Tyler Moss, here with... Chris Husted, co-host. Good morning. Well, good morning to us. Actually, only good morning to me. I'm in California. (laughs) (laughs) We are now recording on uh, the morning after Thanksgiving because got hung up a little bit with all the uh, festivities instead of our normal uh, drinks... I am nursing my fourth cup of coffee this morning. I am in recovery. How about you? I'm on coffee cup number one right now. You have some uh, catching up to do, but you're on a you're in a different time zone, so yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's reasonable. Um, well, let's just go ahead and say that this episode was pretty nuts with all the different stuff we learned and all the stuff we had going on. Um, cannot wait to to get into that. Um, as always, you can. Send your comments to thisamericanhorrorstory at gmail.com or, you know, leave it on our Facebook wall, This American Horror Story Podcast. Um, but before we kind of dig in, want to cover some of the comments from you listeners from the past week. We had a number of people uh, write in on Facebook and emails to tell us that what was on – it was not blood spots on Thredson's lamp. It was nipples that we were actually <laughs> seeing. So I appreciate that being pointed out. I went back and watched it again. And, yep, in fact, those are nipples on the lamp. So gross. that was it was pretty gross, but uh, good detail really though. I mean, talk about yeah. creepy details. That's what the show is all about. Um, okay, another couple comments. We had Lane from Grand Rapids write in again, and she had noticed that in that first scene when Jude was first kind of um, reaching or you know going to see the fixer, you know the the Nazi hunter guy, mm-hmm. that it was all all shot through a mirror, which I guess I didn't even realize. And she was wondering if there was any meaning to it, kind of being shot through a mirror. I mean, what could you see? I mean, obviously, in general, that episode was just super cool, the way he was directing it with all the interesting camera angles, so it could just be a technique thing. I don't know if there's anything more to read into it than that. Do you have any theories? Yeah, not really. I just thought it was pretty cool. They're they're doing a lot of uh, interesting angles, uh, and they do it in this episode as well. A lot of what we see is the, it's like a tilted sideways angle, and then it'll kind of slowly, like, the camera will, like, move around and either right itself or... It'll start right uh, like a like a proper framed uh, um, scene, and then it start will tilt it kind of suddenly. So I don't know. It's that quirky uh, uh, technique, but I, yeah, I don't know if it's supposed to mean anything besides looking cool. One guess I'm just going to throw out there. I don't know that this has any traction at all. Is that obviously this whole show was about you know not really knowing what who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, whether or not really not really knowing like who's who's crazy and who's not, a lot of questioning things. So I think that it's interesting that it's shot through the mirror and, you know, you kind of think about, you know, reflections of people versus the reality of people. I don't know if it's kind of like, you know, what the difference is between how you appear on the outside versus looking into people. I don't know. Maybe something about just a reflection of a person. I don't know. It's an interesting, I mean, interesting technique, though. So Right. Uh, We also have... Um, Lane also made the comment that she had an idea that Threadsome was bloody face before we had the big reveal last week because of the photo that he gave Lana of, you know, Wendy and the kind of that intimate pose. And she said, and we kind of talked about this a little bit, how would he have found such an intimate photo by just checking around when he went to go visit? Um, 
So that photo yeah. probably was not in plain sight. You had hint. to have been digging for it. That was a hint. So that's, that was a good point out, Lane from Grand Rapids. Uh, good find. We also had a really good um, couple comments from Curtis from Boston. Um, kind of digging into the alien the alien connection and drawing a line between them and God. I'm just going to read his comment here because I think it was pretty um, insightful. What I find fascinating about this season is that while they get it up to be or while they set it up to be science versus religion, both elements have such strong sci-fi elements that it's really science fiction versus science fiction, which theoretically anyone can argue that's all that's all science and religion is depending on how you view the more open-ended questions of life. You guys mentioned that up until now you haven't mentioned or included or the show hasn't really mentioned or included God. One thing I observed is that bright white lights, often associated with God, and use of electricity or electrical sound effects are always used for the aliens. But in episode two, the same thing happens with the exorcism. Pay attention to bright lights and the way electricity is used when threads and injects Jed. And Kit later in episode four asked Jude if God sees all. The devil sure can, and it looks like the aliens can too. That's a good point. I was at first convinced that the devil and the aliens were now are somehow the same entity, but now I'm starting to lean more on the idea that the devil and the aliens are against each other. Aliens might be a bizarre way to look at God or any aspect of religion that I cannot shake the feeling that these two storylines are somehow connected. And everyone else is just a pun. I think that's a really interesting point, that the aliens are kind of playing this God role and have been more involved than God. So it'll be... I mean, I mean you can even start connecting the whole thing, like the um, Alma and Grace potentially being pregnant with, like... Immaculate conception theories and stuff like that. I don't know. There's some deeper stuff going on here. So I think that'll be interesting to follow. But he said, um, if you notice, the devil's manipulating everyone, but only really by making them honest, exposing the truth, even if it's harsh, is all she seems to do. I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, she seems to do a little bit more than that in this episode. And if you question why she killed the Mexican patient, she was only true, or she was the only true devoted Christian. So she believed what she was told, unlike the other characters who are all hiding something that contradicts their beliefs in God. So I just thought that was an interesting point to make, that maybe the aliens are, are kind of taking over that role of God, and maybe there's some line being drawn there too. Um, but he also he kind of ends it with one prediction that I think is a pretty good one and could see you know could be true. Is he says, I'll stand by my prediction that I think Sister Jude is going to become a patient at Briarcliff. And that the more she gets closer to the truth, something's going to have to happen. Well, obviously we see in this episode that they're trying to get rid of her. Um, but we know she's not going to go away, so maybe that's how she ends up staying, is they find some way to trick her into being committed, just sort of like how they got, you know, Lana committed in the first place through blackmail like that, you know, so. Yeah, this is this episode really shows the unraveling of a lot of the characters that were previously in control of anything that was happening in their lives, which was Arden and Jude and the Monsignor, um, or even Threadson, you know, even though, he, I, I don't mean in Threadson's, uh, professional life but that would maybe but the control over the women that he was abducting and and murdering like he had control and he's unraveling losing a little bit of control as you can tell as is the monsignor as is sister jude as is dr art they're all becoming uh they're succumbing to the mercy of whatever their uh dark past uh um narratives have have uh have been um uncovered basically Absolutely, and they all seem to have a dark past. The only one, the only person who really seems in control anymore is Eunice. Really, Eunice is stepping up. I'm loving her. Uh, Lily Rabe is killing it too. She's great. Yeah, she's crazy, and is definitely living up to that wild card role for sure. I love it. Um, yeah, she's in control. You're right. That's the only one really. <laughs> before we kind of step in and kind of break it down, you know, play by play, do you have any general impressions of the episode that you would like to point out? I mean, we talked a little bit about this before. Yeah, characters. 
just that there's so many we, you know we're jumping around between almost every it's almost, it's like we're doing a a check-in episode with all our characters and our storylines but they do advance the plot a little bit um we're obviously coming off a pretty good high of uh the the previous episode um but i, I think overall I, I was pretty happy with uh um checking in even with like shelly you know we just things that we hadn't been able to spend a lot of time with uh, or characters we haven't been able to spend a lot of time with we did get some Shelley closure, that's for sure. Um, and one thing, though, that I didn't couldn't quite put my finger on is the whole point of the narrative with the little girl. I what, agree. What, that was, yeah, like, well, we haven't tried this one yet, so let's uh, throw in the creepy kid um, stereotype. <laughs> what, yeah, what role did that play? I'm not, I, I mean, maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe she'll come back. Obviously, now we're kind of thinking she killed her whole family. Right. But, uh... So I don't know if maybe since she has nowhere else to go, she's for sure going to come back. But it was like she was like mini demon to Eunice's adult demon, kind of. Right, right, yeah, that, yeah. I, I when it when it started happening, I was like, okay, maybe this will take the route of a um, of the uh, Anne Frank storyline or something. But it never really did, and there probably is a purpose. So I'm just going to trust that it's going to mean something later on and enjoy right. it for what it was right now, which was just a creepy kid killing her family. Right, because it didn't seem to really affect any of the other storylines. It was just kind of its own little trajectory there. The only thing being that really great conversation between Eunice and the girl. And maybe that was the sole function, that great conversation, which we'll right. talk about in a little bit. But, right. Um, the, the, yeah, that, that was the only connection, really. I mean, Eunice was giving, giving her the, um, uh, the push she needed, basically, to kill her family, it sounded like, and to be who she was. Uh, but anyway, just going back to the general overview, like jumping around between all these storylines, I just, I don't know if you're feeling this, but I'm getting more and more excited because I know we're just building up to a point where all these storylines are going to cross path and, you know, it's all going to come together in one um, uh, um, big moment. You're just kind of hoping that there's some sort of giant interconnectedness of everything that's going to unspool itself, you know, and we're going right. to see how all these stories are are kind of one and mm -hmm. hopefully be really impressed with how the writers pulled that together. I hope that they're not pulling a lost and just kind of flying by the seat of their pants and they have an actual plan with this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think they do. I, 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 w I would guess they do just because they know they're going into this with only 12 episodes or 13 episodes. I forget what it is. 13, so, yeah. Yeah, they know. They know that they have a finite amount of time to put it all together. And it's starting to – I mean, Eunice is kind of jumping around between um, – uh, uh, not Threadson, Arden and uh, Jude's storylines. The Monsignor's now more heavily involved into uh, Jude and uh, Dr. Arden's storyline. So they're all kind of like um, um, becoming intertwined with one another. So it's all going to yeah. collapse at once, I think, which is going to be great. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. And you know what? They, these writers seem to have such an attention to detail, too, with, like, just, you know, we talk about music and camera angles and, you know, the little things we notice from here to there, allusions right. to different stories and stuff like that. You've got to think that when they pay that much attention to detail that they have a clear idea in mind of where all this is going. Right. Or at least with, that's what I'd like to think. Yeah. Um, the other part of the storyline that I'm curious what's kind of going to happen is we finally jump back to the future or the present time, I guess, uh, and we... Here, I don't know. I, do you want to just start with that? Because that's the opening scene, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, we open in the present, which we we kind of thought we were done with the present as right. of re, you know somewhat recently. And there was a nine one one call to the police that brought them to the asylum. And 
We're assuming it's Bloody Face on the phone. He may, I mean, it makes it pretty clear. But it is not Zachary Quinto's voice. It is not Dr. Threadson. It wasn't? I thought it was either his. It kind of sounded like him. You, you know who it is? And it was. A, this was pointed out on Facebook by Tiffany. And I absolutely agree. It is Dylan McDermott, who was um, uh, Mr. What was their ben, last name? Ben Harmon. Yeah. Ben Harmon from season one. Right. So we knew he was coming back. But he is the voice okay. of Bloody Face in this new season. So... We know then that it is not Threadson in the modern day. I'm, pr- I mean, I'm pretty sure. Otherwise, why would they not use Zachary Quinto's voice? I'm 100 percent sure that is Dylan McDermott's voice. Oh, okay, Once, yeah, I could tell. I it, was, it was just vague enough to me that it could have been his, or I don't know. Anyway, that's good to know. I think I'm positive. After Tiffany's comment, I went back and listened to them both, and it is definitely his voice. Which leads okay. us to to some interesting theories that I kind of want to end on because that's kind of the scene we end on. Um, so we can talk about the theories that are kind of possible from that we can right. draw from that. But basically, he calls the police to come find all the imposter bloody faces that are like strung up throughout the, um, you know, Briarcliff. The one, all the ones he had killed, mm-hmm. and so he brings the police into it, which is, I thought, an interesting strategy. I don't know if he is wanting to be caught somehow, or why would he call the police? It didn't really. Wasn't yeah. Really well, he wanted like I mean. I know we're getting to this at the end too, but like he want it sounds like he just wanted to make sure the imposters were caught, and that's not him. And he says like I didn't, you know, those those two people or the one, the husband Adam Levine's character. He's like I didn't do that one. Um, I only killed the imposters. So right, exactly. And so is he a good guy? Kind of. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what he does to that girl. But okay, like I said, we'll, anyway, we'll cover that okay. back at the end. So so I'm okay with skipping through the creepy daughter stereotype storyline <laughs> there's a, uh, yeah not much in there uh, I mean we yeah so the, the one thing I thought was interesting is all of a sudden we see Sister Judah's back which we were not sure was going to happen after last you know we thought she had gone and maybe I thought she was packing her stuff to kind of give up on the asylum last time but it looks like she was just going on a little binge. vacation a little a little sin binge and yeah. was going to you know needed to let off some steam and was going to come back because right. we you know come back to the asylum and she's talking with this mother who's committing the crazy creepy daughter who apparently killed her friend and is chopping off little locks of hair so yeah weird story creepy girl yeah we can kind of yeah it didn't really affect any of our main characters too much the one the one line i wrote down here is they talk about the mom says something to jude about could she have been born this way and it's it's kind of talking about the origins of evil which is another Mm -hmm. recurring theme we kind of have throughout here are you born evil or is it something that you know, life does. To, it's kind of nature versus nurture going on. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit. Right. And here you have different examples of it because you kind of have Eunice, who is clearly was possessed. So, so that would be, um, you know, she was not born that way. It was something that hit her. Same with Threadson too. It appears that like he, he had this crazy Mommy childhood abandonment issues. Yeah. Which clearly manifests itself in Bloody Face. And so right. there's a lot of argument here for nature. Right. Or sorry, for nur- for nurture. For nurture. Yeah. That, we hear uh, in Lana's. Uh, in one of her lines, when we get that lost flashback style uh, uh, of when they're taking in Kit, um, she gives that whole monologue about how you know it was that was once some some mother's baby crying for her mommy or something or his mommy. Exactly. So we know mm-hmm. what Lana believes, and that hap- that gets conveyed in her all her interactions, even the long boring ones <laughs> with um, Threadson during his exactly. exposition of. His origin of monstrosity, which is the uh, title of this episode. Yeah, God, that that was a hell of a scene. Which is kind of what we go to next. It's kind of a really. It's interesting how it starts with uh, 
Lana's laying in bed and we're not really sure where she is. I mean, she she almost thinks that she's back at home because you know she kind of sees the picture of Wendy, and she's in a bed all of a sudden. And she's so getting kind of wondering. The, the, there's a lot of sh- uh, cuts to uh, uh, extreme close-ups or extreme extreme tight shots of someone cooking breakfast. It looks like. So we're thinking that maybe this is a flashback of her and Wendy back in the house until she hears like a it's like a hum or something you know she hears Threadson's voice basically and she remembers where she is and so he's put this bed he made a bedroom into that creepy like death studio in the basement down there which one thing I wrote is how the hell did he get that bed down there I can't imagine that was very easy but he is creepy as hell here when he's cooking the breakfast and his wife beat her and he talks about. The nut, like how nutmeg is the perfect ingredient and all that stuff. And he kind of goes on to explain to, you know, Lana how Kit's confessed and how he's kind of free. Um, but then he goes into the mommy issues when he brings her the croque monsieur and says, the perfect mother's snack. And so you kind of think, okay, he's so she's going to play the role of mommy in this, which is clearly what he has going on. He kind of, as most criminals do in cheesy horror stories, break into their story and they, you know, in a long monologue talk about how he never knew his mother, he was abandoned, he was in orphanages where they beat him with a, a crop, a riding crop, and how he never had any affection. That was that was the one rule of all these places is they couldn't give him any affection. So clearly he craves affection. Um which is interesting because that's not something I would have guessed up until now. I don't think his actions necessarily show him wanting, craving affection, but there's a, clearly abandonment issues. Um, Lana tells him she appreciates this act of kindness with a sandwich and that she understands abandonment. And he kind of starts crying and goes into this like freaky frenzy calling her the one, meaning yeah, you're the, the one, one. to the one to be his mother, I guess, right? Yeah, that's what I got, yeah. And so we go into a little bit of more of a flashback through Threadson's perspective of how he was always very self-aware and he was smart and more afflicted and how he really did study psychiatry. So he really is a psychologist. Um, that was not – because we were kind of wondering, was he just posing to get in and, and find Kit and stuff? No, he really is a psychologist. And he studied it to learn more about his own disorder. Um, and he had his breakthrough in psychiatry school when basically he – like found this woman's corpse who was 33 years old, which is, like, how old his mother was when she disappeared. And um, basically, like, hooked onto her as his mother. Yeah, that um, was a gross scene when when he returns to the cadaver and takes, the takes his shirt off. off and takes his shirt off and then he sits on top of it. And I was like, oh, God, here they go. They are just going deeper and darker. Ooh. And the lighting was really weird in that scene. It was, you know, kind of the way they were filming. It was kind of a fuzzy. Um, it was just all very gross and, and bizarre. But we really got some insight into Threadson's past. Uh, if, if Threadson really is his name, I guess we don't even know for sure. Um, but one thing, another interesting thing is he never mentions what happened to his mother. He just says that she left. Right. So does that? Are we assuming that she ran away and aban- like and abandoned him? Or maybe we'll find out that there's something weirder. Maybe she was abducted by aliens or something, you know? I don't know if his mother will come back into play later or something, but I think there's uh, something, well, obviously... So what we learned, though, is he's definitely trying to replace her. And he's been trying to with all these other women. For a very long time. And he goes into the, he talks about the, these Harlow studies. Yep. About how there's these monkeys that were separated from their mothers and they were given two substitutes. One that was like made of mesh, but it had milk. And another that was made of terry cloth. And he says that they all went to the terry cloth uh, substitute instead of the one that had milk 
because of the skin and like the warmth of the skin of the terry cloth or something, which I guess is he's explaining why he cuts people's skins off. Yeah, he definitely has a fixation on skin. <laughs> on warm skin. He says that he didn't he he didn't like the cold skin of the corpse that he first cut off. Um, and so he went and he killed this librarian, which is kind mm-hmm. of what, you know, in the old flashbacks we saw, you know, when we were talking about what Kit was doing. But one thing that's interesting to note here, too, he's not bloody face yet when he does this. He hasn't made his mask of skin yet. I guess he didn't right. have a corpse to do it with. He didn't do it with the old cold corpses yet. Um, he was just himself when he did the first one. So I guess we're supposed to believe that really he's only killed three people so far, meaning the librarian, the other one that they'd pinned it on. Or so the librarian, Alma. And Lana? Is that the three... Or, sorry, not Lana, not Wendy. Lana. Wendy, yeah. They get, so, well, yeah. even when Wendy... She didn't get... she she Wendy was killed after Kit had already been put in the, in, um, the asylum. Right, and so... So, someone else before that. I don't know if we knew every single one. I don't know. I don't remember, though. Right, well, and I'm sure there's others that we don't even know about, but... So, he likes the living skin, is what he calls it, and he says... It, the last word, like line of this scene is he says, all that work is behind me, mommy. No. <laughs> Meaning like, maybe like her being his mother is going to mean he no longer has to go cut skin off people because now he has a living, breathing mother instead of like living through warm skin or something. I don't know. But he, basically Lana's going to lead him to stop searching for mommy and skin. Yeah. Very, very creepy line though. Well acted by Zachary Quinto though. Yeah, he you did a good job. Yeah. I thought that was They're, they're both, the, together, they're both great. I mean, I don't think anyone in this episode of our main characters they're all coming across as strong character or actors and i've i've read i read somewhere that uh that uh zachary quinto and sarah paulson are really good friends in real life which may be oh, why cool. they're able to pull that scene off but anyway really good really creepy scene we learn a lot about Threadson's backstory um you know we have Another scene coming uh, following where the the Nazi hunter calls Jude and basically confirms that Arden, after all, really is Hans Gruber. After, you know, even though Anne Frank, Anne Frank might have been right. crazy, even though she, she was may not have been Anne Frank. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so he says he wants you know Jude to get fingerprints from Arden, and so that's Jude's whole new mission is to get his finger. Excuse me, get his fingerprints. Yeah, I was like, so originally she was supposed to like try to look for his tattoo right on his upper arm. Yeah, yeah. And now so she's I guess, trying to get a fingerprint. Like, It's like, how's she going to do this? Yeah, so maybe we, we won't ever see his, his Nazi tattoo. Um, so let's talk then about the Monsignor a little bit. Because we've seen him more in this episode than we've seen him in a long time. And we kind of get a little bit of backstory on him and his, his relationship with Arden and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is performing last rites at like this hospital. And this guy's telling him how they found somebody who's just... Has terrible tuberculosis and is dying. Well, it is Shelly, our Rasper, who was thrown in the schoolyard. Um, we we do get to see her again, and I'm assuming this is the last time we're going to see her. Man, does she look awful, though. She's getting I worse mean, and worse, yeah. And so, just talking about theory here for a minute. So, this is what happened with Shelly. She was found. She was taken to a hospital. Is this what Eunice planned all along? I mean, what's going on? What was Eunice's... What do you think was Eunice's motives in, in kind of getting to this point? Getting Shelly out there to be seen? Yeah, yeah. I have no, I, mm-hmm. I still have no idea. That confuses me. I, I, I don't know if she wants to, like we talked about earlier, like just exposing what's happening at the asylum. Even though she says she's protecting Arden, why would she put that, you know, rasper well, out I, there? 
clearly she wants to have a few cards on him, so maybe she's arousing suspicion on him a little bit, and so right. that way he will be afraid of her exposing him even more, so that way kind of she has that upper hand on him or something. Yeah, we learn later, I mean, she does keep a few cards in her back pocket to play against anyone that she can. Exactly. Um, but we kind of see a softer side of the Monsignor, because when he sees Shelley, he is a, he. so we, he did not know the Raspers existed, we're pretty sure now. Like, he didn't realize that these crazy experiments were going. We get a little bit of flashback to 1962, which, are, are, remind me, is our story set in 1964, or is it 19... 19- yeah, 64. So this is right, so, this is right when the, I think the transition between become, being a tuberculosis ward to the asylum was right when it was happening. Right, and we basically see the origins of the relationship between Arden and the Monsignor, where Arden used to be the head TB physician at this place, and he meets the Monsignor and basically talks the Monsignor into letting him conduct these human experiments that are going to be for the greater good of everybody. Right, and, and I wrote, Monsignor man, that consents. sounds like Nazi propaganda right there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. If that's not a Nazi line, what is? But in this scene, though, a couple of really well shot um, kind of tableaus that I think it's interesting, like snapshots that are interesting to take. keep in mind. There's one where the Monsignor is administering last rites to one of these tuberculosis patients, and the way it's shot is like he has his cross, and there's like a little cross open you know, next to him where he has like his prayer beads or whatever, and then in the background, so you see the Monsignor, the way the camera's shot, and in the background you see Arden like rolling his eyes and like looking off to the side. Yeah, And it was cool. a really good, really good juxtaposition right there and the way the camera framed it I thought was super cool. Um, that yeah, that's true. And they have that conversation where um, you know if if the well, I guess before that, but they have a conversation where Arden is also going into his whole uh, research work and how you know it's important. And then the Monsignor, having seen Shelley, is just outraged with him um, and right. wants to rat him out and say this is ridiculous. Um, where the um, oh by, by the way is this also where we see Mark Consuelos back on, on, as the new the new re, uh, research subject? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We have Arden go into this whole spiel about how Briarcliff is a receptacle for human waste, which is also very Nazi language too. When you think about the Holocaust and everything like that, mm-hmm. um, and how we kind of go into this whole montage where he catches Mark Consuelos. Um, masturbating to Eunice through a wall like which we I feel like we knew that well we would have guessed that Eunice knew he was there and we finds out he would, he did yeah and he says did. Eunice he said Eunice tells him to look through there which we know demon Eunice is just trying to stir the pot so that right. probably is what happened <laughs> um and so but but Arden goes into this whole weird spiel about how he talks about Russians shooting nukes and how these new creatures he's making are going to be able to survive a nuclear blast. So he's basically making co- human cockroaches, right? Because you think about, you know, they always say cockroaches are what is going survive. to survive, yeah. which is interesting because in Nazi propaganda, they called, there was a lot of comparing, you know, Jewish people and everything else to cockroaches. So there's an interesting lines drawn there. Mm-hmm. But how they're basically saying how he's going to make the human race so they can survive the nuclear holocaust. The nuclear holocaust. Right. And, uh, and now it's like, oh, we're moving on to the Cold War now. <laughs> ex- yeah, exactly. Um, but he basically threatens the Monsignor and says that you don't say anything about me or I'm going to shine a light on everything that happened here at Briarcliff. Now, 
I'm not really sure what he's referring to here because it doesn't see. I mean, is it stuff we don't know about yet? Do you think? I think there are some things that we're going to find out. Uh, obviously, the, one of the biggest ones is his experiments, but um, but yeah, I don't I, I don't know. But he does say everything will be illuminated, um, hinting that the Monsignor also has some secrets that he's done that we just don't know a ton about him yet. Uh, and he he would go down with Briarcliff if he tried to rat out Arden. And exactly. but then he says. You know, we do have a common enemy, and we both know where the real danger lies. And I was like, Sister Jude, where? And then I'm, I'm assuming they're both talking about Jude, but they're clearly yeah, they're definitely both talking about Jude. And um, Jude goes, to, or the Monsignor goes to Jude, and basically, you know, tells her that he's going to send her away to Pittsburgh yep. because she's lost, she's lost her way, and. Jude gets really upset and, you know, says that Dr. Arden is just because of Dr. Arden and he kind of gets all flustered and says it's not. And so she says, I, mean, I know it you, is. <laughs> so Jude I love her accent. Jude. Sorry. That's, a, that's yeah, yeah. an aside, but her accent's so confusing, but so interesting. It is very interesting. She's good with accents. I mean, talk about Constance in last season yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I'm starting to really feel bad for her though. Cause man, everyone is just hating on Jude now. Arden always did. But the Monsignor, who was somewhat of her friend or a colleague, if anything, um, she just and love interest, and, and she was in love with him. So right. I mean, at least that's how or, it seemed. And so, and lust at well, least, what, yeah. what a heartbreaker, you know? Yeah. Um, and Eunice is hating on Jude. Eunice wants Jude to go down uh, a suffering too. Exactly. And let's talk about Eunice for a minute here because she talks about it a little bit in this conversation she has with this demon girl. Which I don't know if – do you think the demon girl is a little bit of an allusion to like The Omen or some of these older movies that where children are kind of these demons? I mean yeah. I guess that's a lot of movies where children are demons. A lot. Anything I mean, PG-13 these days has a scary possessed kid of some sort. So we're playing with you know horror cliches once again. Yeah, I was calling um, her Samara with a, with a good brush. You know, remember yeah. Samara from the ring? Uh-huh, <laughs> Samara yeah, yeah. Who got her hair <laughs> um, and so, you know, they're preparing food, which there's a lot of scenes that occur in this show where people are preparing food, you know, kneading bread. You're right, yeah. What's, with, yeah. what's with all the food preparation? What do you glean from that? That's interesting. I haven't really thought about it. Um, I'm going to have to think about that. I don't know. I'm curious what our listeners would think. I mean, there's theories you could make, like, you know, cooking is all about... Well, we talked about kneading bread, kind of like molding yeah. food, molding people. Um, food, yeah, I don't know what the whole... I think the Eunice scene the was cooking. just so they could tie in the, the, um, the chef's knife to later That's on, true. probably. But I, but I don't know, but, you know, like, threads in cooking for Lana earlier. That was, you know, what was the point of that whole scene? Why did it have to revolve around food? Yeah, there's a lot of food food imagery going on. Um, I mean, the bread thing could be communion esque, but I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about that. That's a good question, though. Yeah, um, but they have this conversation where the, basically Eunice says tell, says the girl, to the girl, "I know that you killed that girl. I'm the devil. I know everything." <laughs> but she immediately says, "It's okay that you killed her. She deserved it." Um, <laughs> and you get this interesting flashback of the real Eunice, and she's talking about how you know. Um, she says to the little girl, you know, you were privileged to have been born with this authentic impulse where you just do what you feel like. And right. we see the scene, you know, once again shot in kind of this retro flashback. I wrote shot um, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Where Eunice is uh, at like this pool party 
and everyone's telling her that she needs to like go on the diving board and basically like they're all going to strip off their clothes at once. Like what pool party is this? <laughs> I mean, this this as far as storylines go, I know we need to see Eunice suffer in some sort like we see um, you know, a lot of characters who go through a change in their life that makes them the way they are. This was this just felt I don't I mean I don't want to say it's lazy writing but it just felt really forced like this was the easiest way out like let's just make her get naked in front of a lot of people and be embarrassed. Oh yeah, so they end up just for anybody who wants to remember they say on three we're going to pull off of our little cover ups and everyone pulls theirs off and they're all wearing swimsuits but Eunice is not so they basically lied and told Eunice they would all be naked just to play a prank on Eunice um, I, maybe because Eunice is supposed to be kind of stupid and gullible and that's I mean. We'll uh, to Briarcliff yeah. in the first place, but so apparently that's the life changing moment for Eunice that made her, the, you know, uh, the thing she is today or something. I agree. I think that it is not the most cleverly written uh, plot development yeah. here. But I, we get the point of what it's supposed to do. It just felt too easy to write it that way. It I agree. I agree. And it was shot. I mean, it was shot cool. As far oh, as oh yeah, like, totally. I love that. Yeah, like we've um, been a huge fan of the, the 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 film styles, techniques, and the cinematography on this in this series so far it's been incredible so it's been yeah it's been really good and Eunice kind of has a couple really good lines in here she says you know there's no god uh, to the girl she said she I mean we talked about this you know whether or not god exists and she says it's you know there's no god there's just it's it's just something they make up to keep you from doing what you want to be doing um, and so it kind of really gets you wondering, you know, we talked about there not really being a presence of God. So is this something that Eunice is telling us as viewers that we're like, it's supposed to be revelation for us that we're living in a world where there is no God or is it some, I mean, maybe I think they just listened to our podcast and put that line in there. Cause we have been asking that question for the past two episodes. Yeah, exactly. They're finally going to just stick it out there for us. But I do have to say, I have some questions about next week's episode because they're seem to be hinting at, at some sort of... Oh, I got it. Really excited, yeah. I know, <laughs> um, so... Uh, okay, wait. So, before we go move on from Eunice's thing, um, she basically tells the little girl that she's smarter than everyone else, and she knows it, so she should use that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um... Yeah, you, you're right. That she says, "I'm the devil. There is no God." Do you think? Um, do you think she actually is the devil? Uh-oh. Eunice is the devil, or the girl is the devil. Eunice is the devil. I think. She, I don't think she's actually the devil. I think she's like a demon, but she's just like satanic. I agree. I think that Eunice is a demon. And I think, yeah, I think that what she, I think what she was saying is that she's like a, a manifestation of the devil, you know, not necessarily. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Okay, that's good. I, that's, I was just curious. Anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, so that, that's a good point to make, though. Um, so here we kind of follow Eunice again. Um, Jude is packing her stuff. There's like this very heavy kind of, you know, gospelish music playing in the background. Right. Um, and Eunice comes in and says, oh, that, you know, that the, the mother of that girl came to pick up the girl, you know. And she's, she acts all surprised and says, oh, where are you going? To Eunice. And, you know, um, Eunice tells her that she's leaving. and Or, sorry, Jude tells Eunice that she's leaving. And Eunice pretends that she's so sorry. Um, and they give each other a hug. But Eunice spots the red lingerie in Jude's drawer at this point. Um, yeah, she's eyeing but that. <laughs> she's definitely eyeing that. But then you also see Jude um, ask. Um, she asks Eunice for a bottle of cognac, which she then takes to Arden. 
um, for a drink. She says to, um, she's being a good sportsman. And so we wonder for a moment if maybe she's going to poison Arden. It's kind of what I thought. That's exactly what I thought too, yeah. Because that's what Arden seemed to be concerned with because he was like, are you going to abstain from this? I... And he's kind of like, I'm not going to drink this unless you drink it too, bitch. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so she pours it. You know, she pours them both, and she drinks hers first. So he drinks it, puts it down. And we find out, oh, this is going to be how she's going to get his fingerprints because we kind of get this cool zoom in on the cup. Right. So that was kind of a cool trick she yeah, played too. My, I was watching with my sister. She's like, oh, she CSI'd him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Um, is it so and all the while this is happening though? Eunice is dancing around, right, in uh, Eunice's lingerie to Leslie. In truth, lingerie, you don't own me. Yeah, I know. And she's yelling at the cross, saying, "You don't own me." To the cross, takes the necklace off and throws it there. It's incredible. I mean, let's just say I, I think it's interesting. Not only does Demon Eunice seem to be like the counterpart of God, but it's almost like she's like the angry daughter of God that is like feeling rebellious and it's more like, it's not even yeah, just like she's right. the opposite. It's like she holds something against religion. It's bizarre. You know what I mean? Right. She's, yeah, she's evil, but not like so evil that she's like trying to completely destroy the religion. She's just being a rebellious teenage demon. <laughs> she acts kind of childish, really. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. It's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting. She's, you know, dancing around and throwing stuff at the cross and everything like that. Um, but when she's there, the phone answers, or the phone rings, and it's uh, the Tuco's Nazi uncle. hunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nazi hunter, Tuco's uncle. And she pretends to be Sister Jude. And does the accent pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And so... She goes to visit him. We see this scene where she, like, knocks on the door. Yeah, she does the Jude accent, which is kind of cool. And um, we see this scene where she knocks on the door, and he opens, and we know that she's going to do something bad here. Um, Jude shows up. The phone is just ringing and ringing inside of the apartment. Um, The door is kind of cracked open. She comes in. She answers the phone. No one answers. It's just like a minute for her voice to hear, and then Mm -hmm. a click. And then she goes into the bathroom and but sees that, that that scene though when she's on the phone answering the phone and you can see through the door the body lying there. I thought that was awesome. Oh, so cool. Well, that was well very constructed. Well constructed for sure. And like you also see in this scene that all the Nazi like all his Nazi hunter stuff is off the walls now and everything. It's like the room's all well cleaned up now. Um, and you see, then she goes, she sees him in the bathroom. He's got like a shard of glass in his neck. Is that what mm-hmm. happened there? Right. Yeah, it looked like a, the mirror or, or a glass frame broke or something. He got stabbed with that. Yeah. And he's bleeding all over the place, but he's still kind of alive. And she leans down and says, Was it Arden that did this to you? And he says, No, it was a nun. And yeah. So Actually, got... he says, Nun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then and so... Eunice. So now Jude knows that Eunice is. Uh, not, <laughs> yeah, it's not on her side, basically. But what? Okay, what was your theory about the phone ringing? I've got a theory about it, but I want to hear what you say first. Uh, the phone that rang that um, that that Jude went to go pick up in the hotel. Yeah, room? yeah. What do you think the phone? Was? Do you think it was? Oh, Eunice? I yeah, I thought it was Eunice. I I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really think. I, I assumed it was Eunice, but to make sure that Jude was there to see that. I think that's a good possibility, too. One thing I was wondering is if maybe this was some trick. Like, maybe she was somehow trying to frame, frame Jude, Jude yeah, that could be. for the murder. I wonder if that'll be somehow a part of it. Like, she's... I don't know. 
if she'd be able to like record the voice or even if that would end up showing anything but somehow some trick to show that Eunice was at the scene of the crime you know getting her fingerprints on the phone maybe or sorry the Jude was at the scene of the crime like getting her fingerprints on the phone maybe or something like that I don't know so some way way to frame Jude maybe maybe that's what's going to end up you know maybe Jude will get framed for that crime and that's what's going to get her thrown in Briarcliff as a patient that's a possibility Um, anyway so really interesting you know kind of turn of events that goes on right there um, in the meantime, I want to hit on uh, Kit calls Threadson back at you know Threadson's house, and this is the only time we see Kit in this whole episode. And he's at the police station. And he's basically accusing uh, Threadson of lying to him, of setting him up, and everything. And this really upsets Threadson, considering it is true. He gets like weirdly worked up about it, you know. Yeah, I, I, that was weird. I didn't really understand why he cared that much, but Kit, why Kit was calling him a liar. Right, and so all this time, you know, Lana's trying to saw off the chains on her while he's on the phone. But after he freaks out and hangs up on Kitty, runs downstairs. And it's like freaking out to Lana about how Kit's really the crazy one, and he's the one who's seeing aliens. And maybe, maybe, Threadson is very sensitive about being called a liar or anyone implying that he's crazy or not normal in any way. He just seems, like, ridiculously sensitive anyway. Um... But he notices with his amazing ability of deduction, which is very Sherlock Holmes-like, that like, oh, your your pupils are dilated because you're stressed out. And Heavy breathing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're you must have been You must have been up to something. So he whips back the sheets and sees that she was trying to saw the chains off and proceeds to freak out even more about how everybody lets him down and how it's just another case of someone abandoning him. And it's she, how Lana is just like his mother. And uh, so he, like, cuffs her to the bed, and he goes on to say how no one lives up to the expectations you set for him, and then he puts on his creepy bloody face mask. <laughs> and we're thinking, is this the end of, of Lana? But no, it's not. Um, I mean, you want to talk about this a little bit? What, like, the conversation they have? Basically, she just kind of says she understands and she believes, and he gets that he he believes her that she believes him and understands him because we get that lost flashback to uh with Lana uh talking as a reporter how she's going to get the story and how all these murderer murderous people were someone's baby at some point and they always you know they cried for their mommy at some point and and Kit we find out not, I'm sorry not well Kit was being arrested but we find out that Threadson was actually lurking in the shadows right there and overheard that conversation so he knows she's telling the truth Exactly, and so we kind of learn that maybe he her overheard Lana and thinks that she has some sort of compassion for for monsters, and so maybe he thinks that there's still a ch- you know that's what it kind of leads him to think of her as this mother figure, and he is like there's just he's you know on top of her chest and he's like about to cut into her, so that's kind of what led Threadson to think of her as a mother figure, um, and we kind of have her you know she's in desperation trying to get him not to kill her because he's like. His, he's like wiping the sweat away from her neck and he's got that scalpel just about to drive it in there. Very intense scene. Very well acted on both sides. Lana, like Sarah Paulson really well acted here just the way she was freaking out and all the emotions you kind of saw in her eyes and in her face and everything. But, you know, she's struggling to find something to say to him and she says, I'm so sorry, a mother's love is unconditional. She, she calls him baby, which is like the trigger. And and it's he. so he pulls his mask off and then he says, "Like baby needs something." Did you? Uh, what did he say there? Uh, shoot, I forget. I I forget because I was so shocked at what happened afterwards. 
I did not even understand. Did he? Was it like milk or comfort? I I can I listened to it twice and I couldn't pick up on the word he was saying there. So oh, if someone knows, I don't know. if someone knows yeah, what he said right. there, please let us know. But basically, he goes and he starts nursing, nursing, which is gross. And yeah, and Lana crazy. is like her face is just like shocked. She's like, oh my god. <laughs> and that that like after the whole almost necrophilia thing that I thought was going to happen with that cadaver, I was like, oh god, they just they there's um uh, they've thrown everything to the wind here. They do they are going there. Yeah, and they oh god, they went there. I'm glad they're friends. I'm glad that you said that because that's so, so awkward. <laughs> that, you know, yeah, that would have been a crazy awkward scene to film. Good god. Yeah. Uh, so very gross and interesting end to kind of that narrative for this episode. Um, you know, elsewhere we have Eunice confronting Arden, which is an interesting new development in the story. She, you know, has all the Nazi propaganda that, or the Nazi files that she stole from the Nazi hunter, and she's giving, you know, showing them to Arden, and he she calls him Hans, and he says, "Don't call me. Don't ever call me that." And. He says to her, is this everything? And he, she, she basically says, no, I'm going to keep them hidden because I want to keep something on you. Right. I don't want you to double-cross me. Yeah. And he kind of... cookie. She is smart. And so you kind of see, for the first time, she's openly creating a rift there a little bit. And he, he goes on to say this stuff about how he's not a monster, he's a visionary. And then he kind of says to her, like, you're not in love with me. Really, are you? What do you want? Yeah, I'm old and ugly. Like, what, what's your deal? <laughs> And then she says something about it being the beginning of a new era and that how he's going to have to trust her with his soul and kisses him. What do you think she meant when she said, trust me with your soul? Meaning that he's clearly not going to heaven if there is one in this in this world <laughs> and that he will be going to hell no matter what. So maybe if she trust uh maybe if he trusts her she'll like take care of him down there when they die when he dies. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if. That's a good theory too. I was thinking that maybe she was just saying like, "Let me no, why don't you be my pawn for a while because I've got a master plan now or something like that." You know, like right, right. That could be yeah. Well, we, she we know she has something. She is erratic, and she talked about the whole um, with the little girl about that um, um, impulsive authentic authenticity, yeah, or authentic impulsiveness. And she does come across as impulsive, but you know, the people that walk around acting impulsive, they don't like they're. Plans don't always fall in line for some greater picture, um, but if she's more, if she actually is acting more calculated, then there is some bigger plan that he should trust her with if if he wants to stay safe and alive. Exactly, and that's a, it's an interesting point. That she talks about this interest, you know, this impulsivity thing, but at the same time, everything she does is so she's well plotted. So, she's meticulous. Yeah, right. So I mean, maybe I don't know. Like her dancing around with. Um, uh, in uh, Eunice's uh, Jude's Vendre, yeah, yeah, or Jude, sorry, yeah, uh, was very impulsive and weird. And then that phone call just happened, so that that was like a strike of uh, luck for her, it seemed. Uh, so she could, you know, have something on um, on uh, Arden. But then she, then like the with the where the rasper was planted, and they, there, there, there is some cal- calculated uh, element to her uh, her thought process. She seems very calculating, which is contradictory to, I mean... What she was telling the little girl. <laughs> and maybe in some ways she's saying, maybe she's saying, I'm not necessarily that way, but I envy that in the little girl. You know, maybe she's saying, I wish that I had that. Because she says something about how, you know, I wish I was like you when I was born with this impulsiveness. Which, anyway, while we're talking about that, just to wrap up the little girl's narrative, we end up finding out that once again she 
we see how it like, her family. she killed her mother and they talk about how she'd slit her brother and sister's throats but again she blames it on some man in a brown tall coat bearded beard. man yeah yeah and um once we see her we know it's her because she pulls another lock of hair out of her pocket or something like that um i don't know what the hair thing is is that an allusion to some no. other real killer if anyone knows what the connection is with the hair i'd be interested to hear um but just a weird a weird side narrative once again we we're not really sure what the role of that is in this episode it seemed kind of pointless a little bit but anyway yeah. it did show us a little bit about you know Eunice's inner character um so let's end now with back to the present day we see the police like lowering the fake bloody faces down to the ground and they're deciding they're going to they want to go look around and you know find whoever made the call um so they're walking around they find Adam Levine uh, but they can't find his arm, so they open another door, and there's his arm with the iPhone in his in his hand, and the phone is and the cool. phone is ringing, which is yeah, it was kind of a cool detail to have the hand. I like that, yeah. <laughs> so they pick up the phone, and it's Bloody Face to say that he he killed the imposters. This is, this is when, like you said, he he says that I killed the imposters. I didn't kill Adam Levine, basically. And so it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like he needs to. He feels like he needs to call and and make sure that they know that he's not really a bad guy or something like that. I wasn't sure what his motive was there. Yeah, I just wanted. I, I really thought he didn't want the, the 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 fake bloody faces and the mess that they did there to be attributed to him because he's not like that. Like he's got standards as a serial killer. Yeah, exactly. In which we see he now has um, Adam Levine's wife, who is apparently still alive, and he she's right. on some gurney kind of thing, and it looks very similar to to you know nineteen sixties bloody face. But like it we does. Said, I was gonna say that that whole scene is so cool. It's like it's it, it's just like a more modern, edgy, darker, like industrial punk version of the 1960s asylum, like which is a little more mod and and uh, you know vintage. Yeah, exactly. And so he's kind of retro, or you know, fitted it for like this new modern day death chamber. Horror. It'll it be looked like a horror story that we would see today. Exactly. In a movie. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with her. But I kind of want to wrap up here with a couple of theories, potentially, about what this whole thing... So, assuming that it is Dylan McDermott that is the current bloody face now, and, you know, whereas Threads and, you know, Zachary Quinto is the old bloody face, we talked in the past about maybe there being some sort of thing where, like, um, father passes on to son this tradition of being bloody face or something like that, you know? And so here's a couple ideas. I'm trying to think of, like, where do we have babies... In, well, we, in the past that could potentially be this killer. So a couple ideas here are maybe he keeps Lana around to have a child with her or something. Have a baby. That's one idea. That was one idea I had. Also, we have Alma and potentially Grace both pregnant with like weird alien babies. So maybe he somehow gets takes those under his wing and trains them to be bloody face. Because there's going to be... I mean, obviously, with like Alma being abducted and stuff, and obviously with Grace in an asylum, there would be abandonment issues there that could be exploited. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. And if if this baby does is born in the next, you know, couple of years um with, with these storylines that are happening in 1964, the the person would be about 40 something years old, which is Dylan McDermott's age. Or I think Dylan McDermott's like 50 actually, but still that would play perfectly into one of the children becoming Dylan McDermott the new bloody face. Exactly. The timeline fits. And so you got to figure that that's got to be somehow play into it. And so those are a couple theories I have personally, and we'll see if any of them come into fruition. But I don't know. I mean, it's something for everyone to keep an eye out for is, like, basically who's going to be the next bloody face, you know? Are they, yeah. How are they going to make their appearance in the 60s? So, Cool. Overall, what is your impression of uh, 
this episode before we talk about next I, next episode. Okay, yeah, I I would get I'm gonna give this episode four bloody or four Rubbermen. Um, I really liked it. I liked that we bounced around and we got to check in with all our characters. I also liked uh, how it was um, um, kind of everyone tied into how you know it was a lot of origin stories. So I, I always appreciate how people get the way or learning about how people became the way they were. I'm gonna so four four out of five for me. What about you? I'm gonna do the same. I'm gonna do four because I thought the reveals were so huge in last episode that it's like it can't quite compete with that. And the directing was so like so well done in the last episode that I thought right. while it was well done in this one, I liked it. I just thought that last episode was incredible. Um, but like you said, we had a lot of really good backstory. We had a lot of good moments that were like just like you know threads in doing the nur- or you know bloody face doing the nursing and stuff like that. Uh, just a couple really creepy. Good moments, disturbing moments, disturbing moments yeah. in this episode too. Um, that I think definitely you know keep you on your toes with this show. So I would give it four as well. So right. I guess that's in total eight out of ten uh, rubber men for this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good score. I, I agree um, with you. Let's talk about next week's. Episode. I do have or no? Go ahead. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's there's just two asides I had about this episode watching it because I usually. Um, don't always pay attention during the commercials, but there was a lot of liquor commercials. Did, was, was that for you? Like, I saw a Jaeger one, a Patron one, and it's funny because Jude is drinking. Um, cognac. That's been a huge thing for her. Cognac, yeah. yeah. And then there might have been a Cognac uh, one also, but there was definitely one more liquor commercial. I was like, wow, they're really pushing. They know their uh, audience right here, or they're get, trying to get Jude. Uh, yeah, no kidding. They really are <laughs> um, pushing the alcohol angle in the commercials. That's an interesting uh, observation. And then the other thing is in the intro, I always love the the at the end when the the Mary uh, statue smiles. I think that's so creepy <laughs> and cool. I I, I I wrote that down just because I'm every time that happens, I'm like, oh, that's so crazy. I love it. The whole cre- the whole credit sequence, both in this in this um, season and last season, such awesome, well done, creepy ass credit sequences. They're fantastic. Totally. That must have been a lot of fun um, to like, anyway. come up with the ideas for. Um, yeah, yeah, so 8 out of 10 rubber so, men for this coming episode. up. You want to give an overview of what you saw? Uh, I think I saw the Angel of Death. Is that what that's going to be? That is what I wrote, is Angel of Death. And I think it's important to note here, Angel. And so maybe are we seeing a, some sort of emissary of God finally show up in American Horror Story? I, right. And, and you know that she's going to be at odds with Eunice because you know they're, right. they're working for different people here. Right, uh, and we also see Eunice get some uh, some powers. I noticed that too. We're gonna see a little bit of more Arden versus Eunice showdown, and she has some creepy powers. Which is what actually though, this is the same powers that the um, demon had when it was in Jed during the exorcism too. Let's, these That's are, right. We have seen these before, so it's not completely uh, you know out there. Um, well, it is completely out there, but we have seen them before. Um, yeah, and um, we know that Jude comes back. Basically, we see that she's still around. I mean, I guess we really don't know what happened to her after she saw the murder, right? Do, we haven't seen anything since she saw that the Nazi doctor was killed. So, right, we don't really know what's going to happen with that. But she's not gone to Pittsburgh or anything yet. So, right. Anyway, this should definitely be an exciting episode. Um, looks crazy. There'll be a lot of drama. I cannot wait. Um. Yeah, so, I, I mean, what can we say? It was a great episode. We look forward to next week. Uh, hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. And um, once again, to recap, um, please uh, check us out on iTunes where you can give us a rating. 
and leave a review. Uh, that would be awesome. We always appreciate your comments and criticism. You can also send your comments to thisamericanhorrorstory at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook at This American Horror Story uh, Podcast. And um, you can always find us online at thisamericanhorrorstory.com. So, uh, with that having been said, where can people find you well, more of you this week, Chris? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Chris Husted, and that's K-R-I-S-H-U-S-T-E-D. What about you, Tyler? You can find me at, at TJMoss11. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you guys there. But until then, happy hauntings. Bye, everyone.